The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of The Other Side podcast. I'm Scott Kirk, and joining me today is Edward Patrick Akimi, a podcast host and author of the book, You Say Soccer, I Say Football and a writer for SB Nation at the Black and White and Red All Over website. Edward has also written several articles about the problem of racism in football, or as we like to call it, soccer. Welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Scott. How are you? Doing well. We'll just start off with the basics. Put in the context what soccer or football, as it's most most commonly referred to outside of the States, is referred to as football. Put in the context what soccer is to the rest of the world compared to what it is here in the U.S. Sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, of course, also, thanks for having me. It's a you know, pleasure to be on. Um, yeah, soccer. I mean, it is to put it simply, it is the world's most popular game. Uh, so the FIFA World Cup, for instance, which will be next year, actually in a year and a half, roughly, um, it is watched by by some estimates by Three and a half billion people, so that's half the planet uh, watches uh, the World Cup. I mean, it's it's absolutely huge. It is in terms of significance. It really is on an emotional level. It is a way for people to feel represented uh, mm-hmm. because it is just the sheer simplicity of the sport. All you need is space and a ball, frankly, um, and something to mark, kind of. You know, the pitch, um, you know, back in uh, back when I was younger, we would just use some jumpers and some, you know, some kind of shoes and cones and stuff. You just mark the pitch and, you know, that's that's all you need. I think that's why it's been so popular globally, uh, because basically, you know, poorer people can play it easily because they just need a ball. <laughs> they just need a ball and some space uh, compared to other sports like, you know, tennis, golf. You need the expensive equipment. Uh, even right. even football, you know, uh, American football, you need, you know, to really do it, probably you need the gear, you need all the big stuff. But it's just for soccer. I mean, you really don't need any gear at all. And that I think that sheer simplicity of the sport just makes it um, so accessible. And since it's so accessible, it's just exploded in popularity uh, all around the world. So it, it really is just the world's game. And it's, it's a game of the, the people, especially just the working class people. Growing up, I didn't really hear much about soccer, didn't really know much about it. And to be quite honest with you, I kind of just assumed that it was all or mostly all white players. And so it wasn't until I got older and I started to see matches on TV. And of course, you you know, you read about matches in the news and you realize that there are a lot of uh, players of color, specifically um, players of African descent that play for a lot of these teams around the world, which brings us to the, the main thing I wanted to talk to you about because you've written a lot about it. And that's the racist incidents that um, have occurred with the league, the industry, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you will. For example, last year there was um there was a game that was uh widely publicized and it featured PSG versus Istanbul Basak from what I understand they pronounce it as uh, Basak here but you know Basak okay all right <laughs> thank you sir <laughs> there was a game and that was in Paris it was the Champions League and these two teams were competing at one point in the game the game was suspended and basically the players from both sides walked off of the field now what 
allegedly what precipitated this ending of the game was that one of the uh, match officials used a racial what they describe as a race as racial language uh, toward one of the Turkish sides assistant coaches who was who was a black man. And the racial language, in essence, that was used was um, they refer to this official as the black one or, or the black guy by his race, by his skin color. That's just one of the, the more well-known incidents. There was also another uh, incident in 2018 where um, Juventus's forward, I believe his name is Mose King, yeah, maybe yeah. mispronouncing that. He also suffered um, racist abuse from the stands and the fans in the stands, which I've more more often than not, I've seen that. Now, I've seen clips of that, of players being heckled and large numbers of people in a crowd are, are shouting racist slurs or whatever at the players. This may be born out of ignorance, but it seems to me that we see more of these overt acts of racism against black players in soccer matches and I would say, I guess, in comparison to, say, American football games or basketball games, or do you think that is the case? Are they just more publicized? But it's there's really not any more incidents than than any other sport. And if there are more incidences, why do you think that is? What is it about soccer and black players on the soccer field that brings this about? Yeah, I think it is both. I think it is both more publicized and that it does happen more frequently. Um, and, you know, back to something I said just about the general popularity of the sport, I think that's both its beauty and its curse. Um, the fact that it is so popular means that it attracts, unfortunately, some of the worst people um, mm-hmm. in, you know, in society because there's this huge podium, you know, I mean, the entire world is watching. So, I mean, you know, I hate to say it this way, but it's like what better way for someone that wants to get a message out be it positive or negative, um, than to get on the, you know, most publicized platform. Yeah, of course, you're going to go to where the most eyeballs are. So I think it's just from a pragmatic standpoint, I guess, racist people see it just as the best place to, to do it because they're just the most people there. But then, yeah, I mean, in terms of just the publicized nature of it, you know, I think that is also a product of where we are today in society that these issues are more in the forefront. You know, they are being talked about more. In, in the press and just in, in social circles. But I think also with just in general with the sport, you know, back in back in like the early 19th or sorry, 20th century, it was kind of a wild west in the stadiums. You know, um, there were no real security protocols. There was no real, yeah, no real checks in terms of, OK, you know, people, you can't say this, you can't do that. You know, you can't you have to conduct yourself relatively orderly. It was kind of a wild west. You know, people just said and did whatever they wanted to within, you know, within some reason, but mm-hmm. it wasn't regulated that much. That was great for the, I guess, the adrenaline and the passion of the game, but it it wasn't a very family-friendly environment, obviously. Uh, now, that changed a lot when, basically, as with all things in life, once money really started to flow into the industry, um, that's really when it started to change. And most importantly, when when soccer started to become televised, globally um and when sponsorships came in the commercial revenue came in that's really when the sponsors started thinking hey we need a i hate to call it this but we need a product that can be that's that's family friendly frankly that Mm -hmm. can be you know put on tv that can be just humanly shown 
across the world. And then they looked at, you know, hooliganism and they looked at racist slurs and racist abuse and thought, you know, we can't have this if we want, you know, big money coming in. So that's really when they started to crack down on, you know, the, yeah, the very, very overt abuse that happened. It's a lot better, definitely a lot better than it used to be. I mean, it, like I said, 50, 60 years ago, it was just horrific, horrific stuff. Um, some of the research I did for my book and reading those stories were just, I, I mean, you know, there are things that I can't, uh, I don't, you know, can't really say, uh, on, uh, on a podcast. It's just, yeah, really horrible stuff. So it's definitely a lot better. It's definitely come a long way. Still a lot of work to be done. Um, but you know, the money, yeah, really that money angle of just when they had to make it a, just a more sanitized product. And, and just with, you know, from the American perspective, I think, you know, in American sports, money is always, I think it's been there more from the beginning. From what I understand from American mm-hmm. sports, it's been, you know, money has been there more from the beginning anyway. And I think in soccer specifically, money just wasn't really much of an issue or mm-hmm. it, it just wasn't really there that much in the very early beginnings of the game. Um, so, just one so you think that. the money soccer is so lucrative now yeah. that it forced them to take action to tamp down some of these racist acts. But you make an argument that, it, for example, in the PSG versus Istanbul game, that we should be careful about passing judgment on on some some comments and, and some acts because. Basically, the, the attention may not be racist. It could just be a lack of cultural awareness or cultural no- knowledge. And so we need to use more nuance when we approach these things. My question to you, though, is I don't care how bad somebody does at a at an American football or basketball. You don't hear the crowd chanting the N word oh, yeah, if yeah. if they miss a shot or if they make the shot, the the game winning shot. Why should we make a, a distinction or an exception for um, soccer officials and soccer fans that we don't normally do with other sport? Why should I give them the benefit of? The- yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's I mean obviously obviously a tricky answer. I think to me, I just try and look at it from like a first principles perspective of like. Okay, how can we actually solve this problem of racism? And to me, solving any problem of any kind in, in the world starts, it has to start with understanding. Um, it has to start with understanding the causes of, you know, in this case, the, just a very insensitive and, yeah, I mean, racist comment uh, from the uh, PSG uh, Istanbul game. Um, you know, why did the person say this? And then we have to, like, I mean, as much as I don't want it, it's like I have to kind of, step back a little and, and, you know, it's, it's people use the word a lot for good reason, but empathy, you know, I have to understand what that person's background is, what that person's perspective is and why that person would understand it. Only then can I say, okay, this is why he said it. And now let's, let's tell him like, Hey, you know, that's, that's not cool. Like, you know, we can't, we can't do that. I understand from, you know, how you grew up and stuff that, you know, back in your days that that, is what people said, but you know, that that's not okay anymore. Um, so I think it just has to start from uh, empathy if we really want to solve the problem. Um, because yeah, indeed, you know, the world is extremely nuanced and the world is, you know, extremely complicated, but I think there's also, you know, a, a crucial distinction between understanding a person's perspective and agreeing with the person's uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, many, many, many times I don't agree with someone's perspective, but I'll, 
grudgingly understand where the person is coming from. And, you know, again, it's like once that person feels validated in the sense like, okay, at least this person is listening to me and not attacking me, then the person will be more open to, you know, opening up and saying, okay, this is why I said it. This is where I'm coming from. And since you now listen to me, okay, you know, I'm a little more receptive to listening to you. So um, I think it's really just the solution-focused perspective that I try and take with with anything but especially with something as important and as as impactful as racism. What do you think, if, if is there anything that, that we can do or the league can do to stop these incidents from happening? It, just to touch on your point about empathy and understanding, is, is this the thing of these people don't know any better and that's why they're saying and doing these things. And so we just need to educate them on the right things or, or, or the things that they shouldn't be doing? Or is this an, a case of a case of yeah. they know what they're saying? They know it's racist. They know it's wrong and they don't care. Yeah. So uh, yeah. how do you fix that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a short answer, all of the above. <laughs> but uh, yeah, long answer. I think it is education, of course. I mean, I think this is where, and I was thinking about this a lot the other day and also just in writing my book, um, I think the number one thing that soccer officials and and the league and just everyone involved in the sport and sport in general has to do is to recognize uh, this is really a pet peeve of mine, but to recognize that racism is not a sports problem. Racism is a societal problem mm-hmm. that manifests itself in sport. And that's I think it's just the biggest mistake that I see them make because they constantly say, OK, we have to, you know, stamp out racism in, in soccer. We have to do it in soccer. And so and, and like I get what they're saying, but. They're only focusing on racism in the sport. And I remember reading an article uh, the other day. I forget who it was, but the person said it brilliantly. He said, like, look, someone doesn't turn into a racist once they enter the stadium. If they're if they truly are racist, they, they, they were, you know, that way generally or just in their lives in general. It's not like, you know. I'm not a racist, not a racist, and I cross the boundary, okay, now I'm a racist, and then I step outside the stadium, you know, and that there's really has to be that crucial understanding that, you know, it is a societal problem. So what does that mean? Then, you know, soccer officials and, and organizations have to then work with societal, like, governmental institutions, you know, with nonprofits, with with just schools, with with everyone within society. And like I said, I think that's just the biggest mistake that, in, in Europe anyway, I mean, I'd... I, not, I think in the U.S. it's it's they're trying to expand it outside soccer uh, and outside sport uh, a lot more, so that that's good. But in Europe, I see it definitely just they're just too focused on within racism within soccer, and that's just a big mistake, I think. Has there been a Colin Kaepernick taking the knee type of um, moment? In soccer, you know, solidarity, race relations and, you know, the plight of black folks sort of at the forefront of sports like like it has in the States. Has that happened in, in soccer yet? Um, Sort of. Yes. Not their own version of like a, a solidarity movement. Basically, they just they just took Colin Kaepernick's taking the knee and they're still doing it, um, actually. Okay. Uh, so um, as we speak uh, right now, the European Championships, um, Euro 2020 is uh happening right now it was obviously postponed from last year to to this year but um yeah the european championships are happening and um yeah players are still taking the knee it varies from team to team uh so for example i know belgium 
the Belgian, Belgian uh, national team, um, they were taking a knee uh, just right before game. So the crucial distinction also is that um, they don't do it during the national anthems of any of the teams. They do it like right. just yeah. like just a few seconds before kickoff. Um, they'll take a knee a few seconds and then, you know, referee blows the whistle and then um, they start. So um, that has been still has been happening, you know, from certain teams still doing it. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is still that there's, you know, huge awareness of that, of taking the knee, uh, here. And even in, um, what is actually the world's most, uh, yeah, world's biggest league in terms of revenue, which is, uh, the English Premier League, um, they, they, they were also huge on just the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, before games, every team also took the knee. Um, mm-hmm. and they, you know, many teams also had Black Lives Matter shirts during the warmups. So, um, that, you know, definitely is still very much, um, top of mind here. I don't know if they'll still do it in the coming season. That's going to start in about a month and a little bit. So, um, I don't, I don't know if they're going to do that, but, um, yeah, it's definitely still, uh, still happening. And, and, and how, what, what is the fan reaction to that? Cause you know, here it was very, it was a very visceral response. You either had people who felt that, um, there was no place for it in, in the, in the sports, in the game. They, they were against, totally against it. And then you had people that were supporting taking a knee. So what's the, the fan reaction been like? Similarly uh, divisive, actually. Although I think, and again, I think the the big difference here was that they didn't do it during national anthems. Um, yeah. And also, actually, I should also mention that during the club club matches. Um, so in Europe, the national anthem isn't played before club matches. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they just, I mean, they just basically start. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, that that also kind of helped. You know, that there wasn't that attachment, that patriotic mm-hmm. kind of like yeah. that dichotomy between patriotism and like. Racism. There wasn't any of that, so I, I think that helped a lot in making it less controversial. Um, mm-hmm. But people are still, uh, yeah, I mean, people still have very strong opinions about it. Uh, there are likewise people that absolutely hate it, and there are you know people that support it um, very strongly. Generally, I would say that there is support for it, although yeah, of course there has been minor, like small groups of people, loud groups of people that don't like it but generally i'd say the reception has been positive that is a perfect segue to uh to the next thing i wanted to talk about which you wrote about you talk about how a lot of times black athletes when they are referred to by sports announcers or writers they're often exclusively referred to by their their physicality how strong they are, how powerful they are, how tall they are, how fast they can run. And when I read that first thought that came to my mind was, you know, the phrase just shut up and play the ball, which we've heard echoed here in response to black athletes who speak out about social injustice or or racial equality. And, you know, people say, oh, I, you know, I, I just want to watch the game. Why are you making it political? Why can't you just focus on, on the game and play the game and leave all this other stuff out? Is the problem that there aren't enough black sports writers and announcers? Or do you think the bigger problem is just trying to straight up address the racism that's that's being expressed? Should the goal be to make the industry more diverse or is it to just head on deal with the people that are there 
and call it out for what it is and force them to to look at black players in a different light and acknowledge the other strengths and talents that they have. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I remember I remember writing that it was a tricky article to write because I really wanted to communicate. I didn't want to come over as accusatory, but I wanted to come over more as like, you know, hey, like, let's think about this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah, indeed leads to my answer of, again, we have to lead with empathy. We have to lead with with the perspective of like, okay, they don't mean this. And I'm talking about commentators when they, you know, analysts mm-hmm. or commentators say, uh, say that, you know, um, you know, going with just giving them the benefit of the doubt, like, okay, they don't mean to, to do this. They don't, they probably don't really realize that they're, that they're saying yeah. that. Um, because, and that's also because, you know, sports, uh, analysts and writers, they use a lot of sports cliches, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was an article, a really funny article that, um, had like a list of the most common soccer cliches, which I, as someone that's followed the game for like decades, I thought it was absolutely hilarious. It, it was so true. It was so, so true. They're all spot on. And this, I think that's just another one of those basically commentator cliches that they just don't realize they're saying. Um, in this case, it's a more harmful one than, than a funny one. So, you know, I think we do have to lead with, with saying, okay, you know, they probably don't mean to do this. And then going into it from like education. So, you know, when we're training, um, like can, uh, analysts and pundits, you know, when we're training them say, okay, hey, here are basically certain statements that might come over as, yeah, just more harmful and more, you know, slightly racist, um, than other ones. And then I'm sure a lot of them, really, I am sure that, most people do have good intentions and really don't mean to be that harmful. And I, I think they'll just say like, Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. I'll be more aware of that when, you know, when I become uh, a pundit, but um, yeah, it, it's just that. Well, here, okay. That I, Edward, I'm going to push back a little bit on that, but okay. here's the thing. If they don't use that type of language when they, when they're talking about white athletes, then it's not something where someone has to say, Oh, please don't, please try to be more thoughtful. When Here's the thing. These people are making a distinction between the players based on their, on their skin tone. Now you can call it implicit bias or whatever, which we all have. Um, you're such a nice guy. Cause I think you, <laughs> you see, you believe most of these people don't mean to do it. And I, I'm not saying that they're intentionally meaning to be racist, but if you repeatedly make a distinction between the way that you, you speak about one player versus another player that's not like some skill that you got to be taught in journalism school right it is what it is you if you if you speak about a player a white athlete and you say oh yeah he's really fast but he's also great you know he has great tactical skills and he's a you know he's a great um he comes up with great plays and switch over to the black guy and you're like but he runs fast yeah i'm not (laughs) i'm not disagreeing with you I just I just wonder because I I think a lot of these things, like you said, it's it's born out of, I think, out of stereotypes and biases that when you put two players up on the screen and one is black and one is white and you speak totally different about the two, even even though they may be similarly uh, comparable in terms of their their ability. When you guys talk about black players, you you describe them in this manner. And when you talk about white players, you describe them in this manner. All we're saying is we want you to describe the black players the same way that you describe the white players. That's it. And then that person 
has to actually do the work to untangle whatever prejudices or biases that they have so that when they do commentate on 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 a black athlete they're not doing this jedi mind trick to try to you know because it's not really that hard yeah i mean i agree i think it's we have to make a distinction between when it's the individual's responsibility to simply know better and when it's you know they're a product of their environments kind of thing i think a lot of it is just laziness just cognitive laziness of just you know resorting to those cliches basically yeah absolutely yeah it's very frustrating because it just seems like some of these, like a lot of these teams want to use black players to win, but don't, don't give them the dignity and the respect that they deserve. You know, the, the heads of these clubs and the, and the coach, I don't know. You can tell me when these things happen, do, does the club, does the coach, does the owner, I don't, I'm not really sure how it works in Europe if, if individuals own teams, but does the management, does the administration come out strong and 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 unequivocal in their condemnation of these acts one of the incidences that i mentioned um at the start of the show there was no punishment for the people that uh reportedly committed these acts so what happens when these things happen are the black players protected do the teams stand up for them yeah it varies per country in europe honestly um for example, in England, they come up very, very, very strong uh, in support of the the player who who uh, suffered the abuse. Um, so that they're you know they're very good about that. Um, so I follow Italian uh, soccer most closely, and unfortunately, it's been pretty bad in Italy. Um, clubs what, are who often, are the worst countries ever? Which which countries are the worst countries? Um, well. Italy's been pretty bad in the news lately, just the last, well, lately, I'll say one to three years or so, they've been Mm -hmm. in the news pretty badly in terms of racist uh, abuse. Um, But, I mean, I'll say in England, it is still absolutely a problem. It's just, I'd say probably less publicized, or when it is publicized, it's, you know, there is a stronger reaction to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that that plays a part in it. Um, So, yeah, that's, um, you know, in terms of yeah, Italy there, um, but also Eastern European nations. Unfortunately, you know, I don't obviously don't want to pay too broad right, a brush right. here, but yeah. Um, yeah, Eastern European nations have had uh, more, dif- yeah, more more difficulty in condemning racism and and dealing with it more, you know, just more unequivocally. Like, no, this is not okay. You know, just they 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 struggle with that. Yeah, extremely prevalent in, in even England, France, Germany, and so on. Uh, because, you know, and this is something I argue in my book as well, that, you know, soccer, it is the mirror of society. So all the problems that happen in society just mirror themselves on the soccer pitch. What do you think we can do to get more young African-Americans engaged in soccer? Because like you said, it it actually... It doesn't require a lot of money or equipment. You can pretty much play it anywhere. And yet it's never caught on in the black community, maybe urban white kids, but it just never still hasn't caught on with, with black kids. What do you think? Why do you think that is? And what can we do to change that? Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky thing because, you know, obviously with soccer being po- so popular globally, it, it is strange that just specifically to African-Americans that it hasn't caught on as much. 
Um, I mean, I guess the obvious answer is just given the popularity of uh, basketball and you yeah. know football, and like obviously those dominate like strongly above soccer. But um, I think you know, first thing of course is role role models. Um, you need mm-hmm. you know good like just prominent role models in soccer, uh, prominent African American role models in soccer that they can look up to and that kind of validate the notion of like, hey, you don't just have to pick you know football or basketball. Yeah. You can also do soccer. And, you know, then really just appeal to just the, the personal aspect of it, the emotional aspect of like, okay, you know, here's a, a sport that is po- so popular globally. Like you can have an appeal beyond just the U.S. You can have an appeal. I mean, yeah, globally, really, uh, you know, yeah. and, and it reminds me of, uh, probably one of my favorite soccer quotes um, from an Argent- Argentinian, uh, former Argentinian coach and player, uh, Cesar Luis Menotti is his name, and he said, uh, to be a soccer player means being the privileged interpreter of the feelings and dreams of thousands of people. And I thought that was, you know, just one of the most, like, beautiful ways of describing just being an athlete in general, like being the privileged interpreter of the feelings and dreams of, of people. And I think that's really where you have to hit that emotional aspect of like, you know, for instance, now with just, you know, with Black Lives Matter and just empowerment, equality and empowerment, just that movement around it in general and saying, you know, hey, here is an opportunity for you to express yourself um, as an individual, as a young African-American um, that is in a, in, in a way that is just less obvious because the obvious option would be basketball or football. But here's a, you know, just some less obvious way and you know that maybe you can stand out through that more effectively by doing it where it's just less like people are going to expect you to go to basketball people are going to expect you to do yeah. you know football like don't necessarily do what people expect you to do find something more emotionally and personally relevant and, and, and that just resonates more on a personal level you know, you have a very interesting background. You've lived abroad. So do you think that that played a major role in why you were drawn to soccer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're products of our environment, of course. So I think it's just in the environment that I grew up in. Obviously, soccer was the dominant sport. But even then, I mean, I was the only, yeah, I was the only black person on my team basically throughout my entire playing or career, <laughs> if you will. But um yeah, I think. What was that like? I, I think I read somewhere you said you've never had a racist experience. So I yeah, take it yeah. your time on that team must have been must have been well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's I think, you know, when I was young, I just thought like, oh, yeah, no, I just never experienced a racist experience. And now I'm older. I'm like, oh, wow, that was a very exceptional, actually. <laughs> you know? When you were on the team, were you self-aware that you were obviously you were aware of it? Yeah. But yeah, overall, I was really just one of one of the team of course i was like you said you know i was aware that i was the only black person and and that there might be some more attention uh on me compared to my teammates but you know this is one of those things that that's mostly only before the game and then once once the action goes on like once you're actually playing you don't think about these things i mean at least i didn't think about these things Mm -hmm. at all i was just focused on you know winning the game and just playing well but yeah sometimes i kind of like um, in down, down times, you know, or like during, I don't know, after the game or like preparing for a game, maybe sometimes I'll think about that, but 
yeah, eventually. And, and, you know, I'm grateful for just being in such a good environment that I didn't think about that. I didn't have to think about that. I'm just, yeah, very lucky that I didn't, um, you know, but no, I, I just eventually just saw myself as just part of the team. Although that said, I did feel like, okay, if I messed up, then there would, might be more attention on me. But mm-hmm. that was a, it was an afterthought. It wasn't a very, there weren't very prominently uh, on my mind. Which I totally can relate to that. But the, I mean, the fascinating thing about that is just in that second that you had a, that thought, that is a thought that none of your other teammates who were white ever thought about. Yeah. They never yeah. thought about, oh, if I didn't do something right, I'm going to receive more criticism because I'm this color. I would just like people to remember that, you know, sport or soccer in, in, in general is just a very human experience. I mean, it is historically, it's been with us for centuries and centuries, and it's just one of the most important parts of just our existence, just these shared human experiences where we're all together in one place and just all focused on one similar thing. And I think that's why sport is so powerful and that's why it captures so much of society and why, you know, politics gets into it and, and all these kinds of issues get into it. So I think just realizing that it's, it is just, it's such a powerful human experience and, you know, that is why it can be used for great good or unfortunately, uh, you know, great evil as well. Are you more optimistic or pessimistic in terms of things getting better in terms of the racism in soccer? Uh, optimistic for sure. I think because especially with the younger generation, um, you know, we're just the younger generation getting into the sport now, just politically as well. is just more, you know, aware of these things. They're, they're more willing to talk about it and, I think that, yeah, that, I mean, I think that'll improve things, um, definitely over the future. Okay. I just want to thank you again for joining me today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm not a sports guy, so this is pretty good for me to have an entire conversation focused around sports, but you made a very enlightening, uh, definitely a conversation worth having. So I appreciate you coming on and for everybody out there. Don't forget to check out the book. You say soccer. I say football. For all my listeners out there, thanks again for tuning in. And if you like the show, please support local journalism by becoming a subscriber. So until the next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Thanks.